0: This is Health Matters with Sipla. Welcome to Health Matters, a podcast by Sipla. I'm Ryan O'Connor. Now, these days, it seems you can't avoid a certain topic no matter what you read or watch or listen to. And that topic is mental health. It's in the news with the Olympics. It's all over social media. And nowadays, when people ask, how are you? It's just not a formality anymore. So to say we're living in a strange and difficult times might sound like a cliche, but the fact is life is pretty challenging for most of us at the moment. So today I'm very pleased to speak to a very special guest, Jeannie Cavey, a clinical psychologist who works with individuals, couples, families, groups, children, and adolescents. And of course, she's here to guide us through managing our mental health during volatile and uncertain times. Hi, Jeannie.
1: Good morning, Ryan. It's so nice to be here.
0: Absolutely. So refreshing to talk to you. What makes one mentally healthy or unhealthy? I think let's start there.
1: Okay, so I think it's about two things really. It's about the effective regulation of your central nervous system and your ability to attach and form meaningful and sustainable relationships. When we have these two things in place, we're able to handle life stresses, we're able to do the things that we need to do on a day-to-day basis but we're also then able to build the meaningful attachment relationships that help us have a sense of wellness and well-being. So these two things come down to two functions in two separate parts of the brain. The first one in terms of regulation and attachment come down to a, a very special structure in the middle of your brain called the amygdala and how regulated that particular structure is. And then when that is all working well, that has got to be the foundation of our, our mental health. When that's working well, we also need to have interactional skills um, in order to be able to build and manage meaningful and sustainable relationships.
0: Okay, well, obviously, we know the past eighteen months and uh, you know every every month three, we 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 it 's another month in nineteen twenty soon it's going to be two years uh, that this pandemic has played a role in our life um, The effects of this have been vast on mental health amongst adults and children, and you must be seeing quite a bit of that
1: yeah definitely um it's really been a terrible time out there, which means it's a fantastic time for business when you're in the uh, in private practice because mm. everybody is seeking mental health care. Um, so the busier we are, it's a barometer of how difficult things are out there. Um, and for once, it's a, a little bit different because we as therapists are also experiencing the same stresses that our clients are experiencing. So it's a very difficult time for everybody. We're all incredibly busy and saturated and our clients are feeling very saturated themselves as well. So we're definitely seeing a much higher rate of people seeking um, mental health care support. And so it's really fantastic that it's a lot more destigmatized and a lot more available for all people. But the effects of of the pandemic itself, I think, really comes down to lockdown and the isolation of lockdown, Mm. which we'll get to in a moment, but also the uncertainty and our experience of loss of control. Sure. All human beings have a certain attachment to control. Show me a human being and I'll show you somebody who wants to be in control. From the time we are two, which is why they call it the terrible twos, we want to exercise a sense of agency over ourselves and over our environment. And what the pandemic has done is it's given us restricted control in terms of our life choices, in terms of what we want to do with our time, in terms of where we can go. We're all very restricted. But it's also given us this terrible experience of not being able to predict the environment. Mm. Um, and COVID in particular is quite a, an unknown entity to us. It doesn't behave in the same way that other viruses behave um, we often hear of people who are partners who live in, who sleep in the same bed. One of them gets COVID, the other one doesn't. We, in the beginning, we really wanted to believe that um, certain comorbidities meant that you were unlikely to survive. But if you didn't have that, you'd be okay. And we're seeing that that's not strictly true anymore. So COVID um, in general is making it very difficult for us to have a sense that we can reasonably predict the environment, which is making us feel very out of control. Mm. And our central nervous system reads that lack of control as a threat. And it's just as much of a threat as being chased by a lion or having a gun to your head. But it's been for such a long time now, and there doesn't seem to be a meaningful end to it, that we're all getting into COVID fatigue and burnout Because there isn't a closing off of that fight or flat response.
0: That's amazing. Um You mentioned there the fact that, and it's so true, the destigmatizing of mental health. Uh, it was uh, prior to the pandemic, it, and to a certain degree, taboo to almost chat about, you know, mental health. And certainly, uh, if you look at five, ten years ago, uh, even more drastically than what you know now. Every person you meet, they feel it's okay uh, to share how they, 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 you know, how they're feeling, what they're. Going going through uh, their, their mental health status, uh, it's almost acceptable to have some or other kind of abnormality, as it were, or some kind of unhealthy status. Um, but it's it's unfortunate that it's taken a pandemic for us to almost accept that mental health is a, you know, it's a real thing that many people have suffered with for uh, since the beginning of man.
1: Yes, definitely. And I think that there is a very strong movement um, towards destigmatizing mental health yes. and definitely a movement towards accepting. Yeah. But we see that for every action, there's an equal but opposite reaction, and there are also a lot of people that are even now more rigidly clinging to the idea that mental health is all in your head. But where else would it be? Uh, Mental (laughs) mental health is all in your head. You can just snap out of it, um, pull yourself together. Yeah. yeah. Um, You know, it's all about willpower. You know, you can choose how you feel, and that's even a movement that is part of the the mental health care movement, which is positive thinking which can sometimes become very toxic in positive thinking, which ironically, it's part of the mental health care movement, but it doesn't make space for people to have less than positive thoughts and experiences mm. um, and and almost stigmatizes itself sure. when people are really struggling with life's challenges and forcing this toxic positivity. So I think that there are the old school people, and you still hear of them, mm. that really just can't wrap their, their, the their head, head around, around the yeah. fact that there can be a part of your body that is not seen, and that's your mind. Sure. It's just as important. The health of your mind is just as important as the health of your heart mm. um, and how the two are so closely related to one another anyways. Yes. So you do get those old school people that are, are naysayers and criticizing um, like Meghan Markle and um, and Simone Biles or criticizing them for coming out and notice that both of those are also women.
0: Sure, sure. And
1: we don't have a lot of people except for um, Michael Phelps, for example, yep. has, has been speaking a lot recently about his mental health challenges. But a lot of people still criticizing them. And then also in addition to that, we have to just be mindful of toxic positivity, <laughs> yes. which doesn't make space for the pain and discomfort of being alive sometimes. Oh.
0: Um, you also touched on the effects of lockdown. And I think immediately when I hear the word lockdown, I, I do, I feel caged. I feel like there's walls and barriers around me. I feel limited as to what my options are. I feel entrapped. I feel claustrophobic. These are things that come to mind when I hear the word lockdown. Now, I have learned how to deal uh, with that word and how to you know, separate my anxiety around that word from the reality of what my my day-to-day living is but the reality is that if the effects of lockdown have been vast on people's mental health and by people I mean adults and children mm,
1: definitely it's kind of like that you know human beings are very sensitive to paradox and paradox is an instruction that has the opposite effect of its intention mm. so if i say for you to example for you and please don't think about eating chocolate cake today. Oh, don't do no that, No matter Genie. what.
0: Don't do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Don't think about chocolate cake or even cheesecake. Oh, stop don't it Don't think now. about any. you know
0: me so well. In
1: fact, definitely not <laughs> after this podcast. Don't go to your favorite coffee shop and no. get your favorite chocolate cake or cheesecake.
0: That's exactly what I'm going to do now, Jeannie. You know that I'm going to go from here exactly. because you said, no, I'm going to go and I'm going to go buy the biggest slice of, of New York cheesecake.
1: Oh my goodness. Okay. Now I also want some cheesecake. <laughs> um So that's what we're like as human beings. We're sensitive to paradox. So when we get um an instruction, we typically want to do the opposite right. of that instruction when there's a very particular kind of instruction that has a paradoxical impact. And lockdown is just one of those instructions. So most people actually don't mind spending time at home, enjoy having a weekend off from social obligations. It's It's all right. But as soon as you're told that you may not leave your home, that you may not go to the gym, that you may not gather with your friends, then it creates a bit of a paradox where that's all you actually want to do. Mm. So the lockdown has got that paradoxical, and like, like you said, that word lockdown. Mm. And it's actually wild for us to think that this is our reality. Um, had you told us two years ago that we would have curfews, that we yeah. would be restricted in when we could go to buy alcohol, um, that we would be restricted from going to weddings and funerals, we never would have believed it. And for some people, it feels very dystopian, almost like we're living in an episode of The Handmaid's Tale, sure. where the government has got increasing, again, control over our lives, and we have a relative sense of loss of control over our lives. So in addition to that you know, loss of control and the paradox, there is also the effect of isolation itself on the central nervous system because our central nervous systems are not built to be in isolation. Mm-hmm. We have a, a, a need for what we call co-regulation for my central nervous system and your central nervous system to get together and regulate each other, almost like like an earth wire and a live wire. And we take turns. One of us will be the earth wire and the live wire will get a chance to to earth itself. Mm-hmm. And then the other person will be the live wire and you'll be the chance to be the earth wire. And when we don't have that, our neurons tend to get into a little bit of chaos and we start to become in isolation, what we call a closed system, where it becomes very difficult for us to reality validate. It becomes very difficult for us to down regulate, and then that can build anxiety. And then what do we do when we're anxious is we isolate. Mm. And the more anxious we become, the more we isolate and the more we isolate, the more anxious we become. And we know this from studies of solitary confinement. Yeah where they look at the psychological impacts of having people in solitary confinement. And you don't have to be in solitary confinement to be isolated, but not having meaningful social contact with other people has the exact same effect as being in solitary confinement where a person can develop anxiety to the point of even paranoia, to the point of even psychosis in very severe states, um, states and also depression. And so the isolation breaking us away from our social relationships and how our central nervous system relies on other people's central nervous systems in order to function properly. Definitely compounds the paradoxical effect and the loss of control that lockdown represents.
0: Yoh. and now from lockdown, another major, you know, kind of a next progression. If you're unfortunate to be in that in that category of people that have been affected by COVID itself, is of course trauma loss. Mm. Grief, and we're talking about adults and children here, um, and that is the reality, obviously, of the pandemic and the almost another whole chapter of mental health that needs to be, obviously, be discussed.
1: Mm, definitely. So it's very important to understand um, uh, trauma and grief as um, different entities to one another, and how the two of them can often keep each other stuck from healing. Okay. So um I'll first talk about trauma and then we can talk about grief. Okay. And, you know, trauma doesn't have to be a, what we call a big T trauma, somebody having a gun to you, your head, a house robbery, a car accident, seeing somebody die in front of you. Those are big T traumas and those are definitely traumas. But we also get little T traumas. And little T traumas are any time there is too much information in your brain in too small amount of time and space. So if you think of your central nervous system like a like a bath full of water, how your brain clears that water away, it will scoop that water away. And if you think about scooping that water away, it will make ripples and waves in the water, Um, correct? So that's how our brain heals and regulates itself is through our brain waves. So when we when there's enough space, when the bath is say three quarters of the way full and we we take a a bucket and we scoop some of that water out to make more space to deal with things. And it makes those ripples in the water. The brain has got enough space to cope with those ripples in the water without anything splashing over. And that is when we have good stress. Uh, We know that we are a little bit stressed and it's the same for adults and children. Their their central nervous systems are maybe just a bit smaller. They're more like a bucket than a bath, but it's the same for them as well. Mm. They get overwhelmed just a bit more, more quickly. But when that bath is full, 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 like full to the brim. And you try to scoop some of that water out. As soon as you try to scoop that water out, the bath is going to threaten to overflow. Now your brain, and especially the part of your brain that regulates this, doesn't have any thought, any logic, any reason. And that's a little almond-shaped structure called your amygdala. And that amygdala is like the hand that's on the dial of the brain's radio and controls the patterns of brainwaves. And when it reads that these brainwaves are threatening to overflow the bath, it reads that as actually being a threat to your survival. And it locks down the brain into the survival response by first going into fight or flight. So that's where we feel irritable. That's where we feel agitated. That's where we don't sleep well. But when that fight or flight doesn't work to resolve the stressor, which for most modern day stressor doesn't work, then we go into a process called freeze and fold. And that is when the brain actually takes that, that information, takes that water that's about to splash out and makes a capsule around that water, makes a capsule around that information and then sends that information back down into the bath to be stored for processing later. Sure. And that forms like a rock in the bath. And obviously that rock in the bath causes the water level to rise a little bit more. So even if it is the trauma of hearing about other people's losses, even if it's the trauma of seeing so many homeless people begging on the side of the road, even if it's the trauma of um, your friends um, not making time to, to Zoom with you, even if it's the trauma of being unsure whether you're still going to have a job, that is just as much trauma for your brain as one of those big T traumas that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And that capsule of unprocessed information cannot be cleared out with positive thinking. It cannot be cleared out with willpower. It cannot be cleared out with with sentiments like, well, at least it's not as bad as it could be. It doesn't get cleared out through any of that. It gets cleared out internally with space in your central nervous system and um, a particular pattern of brainwaves that helps clear out those capsules. And it also gets cleared out when there is space relationally. So in your interpersonal space where you receive empathy, understanding, Mm. and acceptance. And sincerity from the people around you, which is very difficult to do when we are asked not to be in contact with the people around us. So that is the, the trauma. And there's obviously lots and lots of trauma going around, yes. not only COVID, but the civil unrest that sure. we experienced recently, the states of the economy, everything happening in our countries. And then there's also the meaning that we make of the trauma, which is, and the, the meaning that we make of our loss, which is called grief. Mm. And our grief sits in a different part of your brain. Grief sits in a thinking part of your brain. It sits in the parts of your brain that has an attachment to your values, to how life should be, that creates a sense of, of connection and meaning mm. in the relationships and objects that you have in your life. And it's got to do with a sense of self, because how we, how we define ourselves is through understanding who we are in our relationships, just like how you get to know how you look by looking at yourself in the mirror, we get to know ourselves by how we react to people and how they react to us, Mm. how we react to our job and how how we perform in that job, how the, the feedback that it gives us. And that's how we get to know ourselves. And so when that gets taken away abruptly, when there is a loss and there is grief, there's also a process of figuring out the sense of self again and making meaning. And that is very difficult to do when your brain is actively traumatized because when that that trauma happens and that trauma gets triggered and activated in the amygdala, it shuts down everything that happens in your cortex, the thinking part of your brain, and it goes into stimulus response for survival. So when we have trauma and grief, and the two of them often go hand in hand, it's very difficult to process and make meaning of our loss, to quantify it, to refigure ourselves out, to reapproach the world in this new way, When our brain is saying that actually the threat is still happening, actually the danger is still out there. And similarly, so when we start thinking about our grief, it activates the trauma and the trauma makes it difficult for us to process and make meaning of our grief. And it's the same for children and it's the same for for adults, but it's just on different levels of abstraction. So children don't understand loss um, as as being as permanent as adults do, but there is a renegotiation of their relational selves and their sense of self when someone passes away or daddy loses his job or we can't, we have to move to a smaller house. Mm. Um, And that also needs to be handled in the interpersonal space with children.
0: Now, to add to the mix, if we can, the filtering out of our surrounding bad news, and it's everywhere, unfortunately, the second we open our eyes and turn on anything, and it happens to be uh, a TV, it happens to be our devices we grab and we have a look and catch up on the latest news, we are faced with this overload these days of bad news. How does that play its role on our mental health?
1: And such a beautiful question, Ryan, because I always say to my clients, um, social distancing is also about distancing yourself from unhelpful social inputs. Nice. Um, so whether that is, you know, whether that is a WhatsApp group or social media, it's about understanding really that your brain, not your mind, your brain yes. can't tell the difference between an observation, uh, a perception and a memory or an image. So if you put somebody under a functional MRI and you ask them to think about at the beach with their eyes closed, or you ask them to open their eyes and you show them a picture of the beach, their brain will react in the same way. Wow. So your brain can't tell the difference between your mind can, your mind knows sure. that it's, it's it's just the news, your mind yeah. knows that it's it's social media, but your actual physical brain thinks that it's happening right now. And what that does is that it opens up your fight or flight response loop but there's nothing that your brain can do about it. And remember what I said, when your brain can't do something about the stress, it goes into freeze fold and it makes a capsule around that stress. And that capsule of unprocessed information is what we call trauma. Yeah. So you can actually be traumatizing your very own central nervous system by allowing all sorts of unhelpful um, images and awarenesses and stories to come in. And so I do strongly encourage people. I've, I personally believe I've complete faith, that anything I need to know about will make its way to me. Sure. But I think that's also because I talk to a lot of people, you know. My clients come and talk to me every day. So I personally don't watch the news. I I hear enough about what's going on at work that I protect my central nervous system outside of work by not watching the news, by watching things that bring me joy, that are maybe lighthearted or interesting for me. And also looking at the people on your social media feed that typically tend to fear manga, that typically tends to Absolutely. activate your central nervous system, that typically tends to open up that fight or flight response and not give you a way of closing it, which is going to cause your brain to go into that freeze fold, which is that shutdown, immobilized, there's nothing I can do about it. And that causes that capsule of unprocessed information, which we call trauma.
0: Jeannie, I love that idea of taking a break away from um, using social distancing, not only for human beings, but for our devices, for technology, for for, for just to break away and almost detox from a, a world that we're often lost in. Uh, there are people that are addicted to their devices. They live in it all the time. And are, uh, we, we've we heard from friends and we know of people that come and it changes their whole outlook on life. They're moody. Why? Somebody said something on on social media to upset them or to, and they've allowed that in and it's changed everything about them and who they are in the actual flesh, uh, in in the moment and in that time. So I love that. I love social distancing. Do that as well for uh, things like the technology that you sit behind every single day. Um, I just want to just quickly talk about the importance of boundaries and self-care, especially when, when caring for others.
1: Yeah. So you can't talk about self care without talking about boundaries. Sure. So what are boundaries? Boundaries got this beautiful concept, but what does it actually mean? And boundaries are actually the meeting point between your needs and your capacities. Okay. So a boundary is a, is a budget that you create that is a balance point between your need and your capacity. Sure. And what we're aiming for in sustainable relationships is a boundary arrangement called interdependence. Mm-hmm. And in interdependence, the rules go as follows. I am responsible to appeal to you for my needs to be met, and you are responsible in managing your capacity to meet my needs.
0: Sure.
1: Then you are responsible to appeal to me for your needs to be met, and I am responsible in managing my capacity to meet your needs. Where that can go awry is in a concept called codependence, where the rule is I am responsible for your needs. Sure, yeah. I am responsible for your capacity to meet my needs. And don't worry, I actually don't have any needs and I've got infinite capacity to meet yours. And in that, it's actually like spending a whole lot of money without earning it mm-hmm. and without managing your, your budget mm-hmm. and giving away your entire salary to, um, to charity. Now, it would be very nice of you to do that. But when you give away your entire salary to charity, you're also then not paying the people that provide you with other services and causing them to become charity cases themselves. So in trying to solve that problem is actually the solution that becomes the problem. So having sustainable boundaries is of benefit to everybody, not just to you, but to everybody, because it means that the relationship can continue. And a very important part of boundaries is shifting that rule from what you are responsible for. So a lot of people, for example, won't ask their loved one for something because they don't want to inconvenience others. So they, instead of asking, will wait for others to offer, but people don't always have the same needs and don't know that they need to be offering it and when they need to be offering it. Mm. And we've got this terrible concept in our culture that sincerity and spontaneity are the same things when it comes to needs. I hear from from um, people all the time, especially wives, but why should I ask my husband for X, Y, Z? He should just know. Well, he doesn't know because his brain is wired differently sure. to yours. Um, and it's like asking him to think of a of a, of a new colour, a whole new colour that he's never seen before. So rather explain it to him Cerise, and, ask, and then see Ginny what happens.
0: I'm just saying this. I thought that just popped into my head. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm just saying Cerise because uh, you just reminded me of my wife who asked me to think of a different colour the other day, and I couldn't. And so Cerise has uh, just popped into my head. Yes, and my wife's often asking me for different colours, <laughs> and I don't know, Jeannie, I just don't know.
1: Yes, rather say hot hot pink. I'm sure you've got a frame of reference for hot pink, but not cerise. Okay, that's a beautiful example, right? Stunning. So yes, rather just be clear and explain. So, you know, interdependence is about giving other people the opportunity to manage their capacity to meet your needs. And that actually frees you up to express your needs. Mm. And it's also about not taking responsibility that other people's needs are not automatically your obligation. Your ultimate obligation is to maintain the sustainability of the relationship by maintaining Mm -hmm. boundaries. So it's important to then know yourself very well, to know what you need and to know when you're reaching your capacity. And that's where the self-care comes in. So self-care is about being very intimately involved with yourself so that you know yourself very well. You know, a lot of people, especially when they have children, they will be able to tell you exactly what that child has eaten Exactly what the consistency of their morning stool was. Yeah. yeah. They'll be able to tell you how many milliliters of water, milliliters of water that child has, has been drinking. They'll be able to tell you everything about that child, but you ask them, okay, so did you take your multivitamin? They say, like, Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. So if you look after yourself like you would look after your child and be so intimately aware of yeah. yourself as you are of your child or your pets or whoever's important to you. Then, that's, then that gives you an opportunity to get to know your needs and also gives you an opportunity to get to know your capacity and when you are at the limit of your capacity. Absolutely. And it's incredibly important to notice that early on because most of the time, by the time we can recognize that we're actually um, at the limits of our capacity, we are already out of our frontal lobe, out of our cortex and into our subcortex and into our amygdala, where we don't actually have the capacity to do anything about it and then it's too late. And then we have a breakdown or we have a meltdown or we have burnout. Yes. So getting to know yourself incredibly well is a very important part of self-care.
0: And for all those people that are, um, yes, they're pleasers, they're yes people, they are yes, yes, yes. If you want to ever see a yes person go beyond that line and push them to that part of their brain, they go very quickly to a point where they they, they don't gently go to no, they snap, and they then and then you want to know why they've snapped, 100%. why they've all of a sudden become very nasty, and it's because you've you know you, you've you've taken advantage of somebody who's being generous and by nature are they yes people, and they'll go out of their way to please you, and they, they, that's what they do. And uh, communication, they again. And Jeannie, obviously, is key. Don't be afraid to communicate. Tell people how you feel, that you are at the moment, got too much on your plate to handle. And you can't, unfortunately, do this for them. They will understand you're only human. Okay. I want to know at what point, Jeannie, does somebody go, okay, listen, I'm in a place where uh, I need to talk to somebody about it. I need to reach out to someone like yourself, Jeannie. I need to sit down with you, talk to you about what I'm going through. But I I, I no longer can deal with, with this by myself.
1: It's beautiful. I love what you were saying just a moment ago. I want to just touch on that. I call that the guilt-resentment seesaw. So an over-accommodating person will agree and agree and agree and yes. start to build up resentment. And they get, the resentment gets so high that eventually when they do say no, there's so much momentum behind it that it comes out as a very harsh and hard no <laughs> and an overreaction. Yes. And then they feel guilty for that reaction, start absorbing again, and then build up their resentment. So I love that what you point out there, the guilt-resentment seesaw of being over-accommodating, which another word for over-accommodating is people-pleasing. But coming back to your your question about how do you know when it's time to seek help? Yes. So somebody actually asked me the other day, like, how does a person know when they need to see a therapist? And I actually had to think about it. I said, well, when there is a mismatch between what you are trying to do, what you're trying to achieve and the result that you're getting, and you've run out of of solutions. Mm -hmm. So any time in your life where you have an objective, you have an aim, you have an intention, but you seem to be missing the mark and you're not getting what it is that you want out of a situation or a relationship, and you've used up all the solutions that you already have available to you in your role repertoire, in your frame of reference, then it's a good time to see a therapist. When, Because therapists can help also, and like I always say, we don't help people with their problems. We help people with their problem solving. Sure. And we help people to develop new ways of tackling their problems that bring about um, a range of new solutions that weren't available to them before. Um, In terms of burnout and stress, um, a very good way of knowing that something needs to happen, that you need some kind of intervention or assistance, is by looking at your sleep as a very good indicator. So when your sleep goes haywire, um, looking at your self-medicating behaviors, are you maybe drinking a little bit more than usual? Are you maybe eating a bit more delightful um, New York cheesecake than usual? (laughs) Are you maybe doing other behaviors that are intended to be self-regulating, but can be harmful like cutting, for example? Mm. Do you feel agitated if you miss a day at the gym? And also, how are things going in your relationships? If you're finding that you're not functioning in your relationships, you're not the self that you like to think of yourself as being in your relationships, and you're having unpleasant interactions with the people around you. It's a good sign that there's something amiss either in terms of your brain's ability to regulate itself and help you have access to your relationship tools and skills or that in your training in life through your developmental years and the experiences you've had, you don't have certain tools that are important for this particular problem in this particular relationship. So I would say that is when you know it's time to speak to a therapist or get some kind of help for whatever it is you're facing.
0: Jeannie, thanks so much for your time and thanks so much for your advice and and clarity on issues of mental health. I think it's vital at this time.
1: Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for the initiative. And it's a real privilege
0: to be with you all. Stunning. That was Jeannie Cave. Thank you for listening to Health Matters brought to you by SIPLA. I'm Ryan O'Connor. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please remember to rate and review the show. And of course, we will be back next week with a brand new episode. You've just enjoyed Health Matters with SIPLA.